Father, we um, are so grateful for this gift of teaching that you've given to Joe. And um, this morning, Lord, we know that you, you speak to us through preaching. Mm. And you've laid a powerful message on his heart. I pray that yeah. you'd fill him now with your Holy Spirit and that we would be attentive and have our ears open to what you're saying to us. Mm. Holy Spirit, you are here. You speak. Would you come and speak to us now? And may we follow through and obey what you say. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, good morning, church. It's uh, good to be with you here this morning. For those of you who don't know who I am and you didn't catch it, my name is Joe. I'm one of the elders on staff, and it's a wonderful privilege to be able to bring to you God's word, particularly you being here. The last time I preached, we had... Uh, no one in the room, and so I had to stare at the camera the whole time, uh, which I got to admit is not my favorite thing to do. And so I get some faces, even though they're half covered up, and I get to see hopefully some nodding, and uh, man, it's just, it's wonderful, wonderful to, to have you here. I really mean that. I'm not just saying that because uh, it sounds good, but it's really good to see you all. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, will you please open them up to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-7. We're going to be continuing on our series uh, through Priceless, uh, through uh, Second Peter, and uh, we've finally made it after months uh, through chapter 1 and chapter 2. It's the final chapter, it's chapter 3, and we're even going to be doing seven whole verses, believe it or not. Uh, so it's, it's great, and uh, so if you have your Bibles, if, it's, if you don't have them, they should be on the screen behind you. Um, if you're watching online, it should be on your, whatever device you are using. Let us read. It says this. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. Can you just hear Peter's heart there? This is the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up uh, your sincere mind or pure mind, depending on what translation you have, by a way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and of the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that the scoffers will come the last days with scoffing following their own desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since our fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens were created long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water uh, by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was indulged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Let us pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that you have revealed yourself to us through it. And so, Lord, as we dive into this, we ask that you would help us as a congregation to be stirred for the revelation of God, that we would have a, a, a real surety that what is written in your word is true, that our relationship with your word would be solid and good, and that, Lord, we would love you. I just pray for that this morning, that those of us who are watching online and are in this room, that we would have a stirring in our hearts for the love of Jesus. We would love you with all our hearts, Lord. Do not let, let, let us stay cold. Do not let us be a people that are just uh, apathetic to the things of God, but rather that we'd be a people that pursue after God wholeheartedly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I just want to give you a brief update, and I promise it will be a brief recap of where we've been. Uh, it's just too much to be able to tackle all in, in one part of the sermon, but and maybe it's important for us to be able to highlight some of the things that we have discussed that are important for today's text. And maybe the, one of the first things that we need to remember is back in chapter 1, verses 16 to 21, Peter introduces the idea and argues for the second coming and the final judgment. He does this by... Uh, appealing firstly to experience. He says, man, the glory that is to come, the glory of God that is going to come back at the second coming is something that I've seen. It's not something that we have conjured up or made up in our minds, but rather that very glory of Christ that when he returns, I've seen it with my own eyes. And that event we know is the transfiguration. At the, oh, he was on a holy mountain and he saw Christ transfigured into that glory. He says, man, I saw it. I heard it. I heard God speak from heaven. said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Man, this is the one that's going to come again. He's the king of kings. He, he is the one who is our 
our suffering servant who's going to come as our savior again. It was a physical event. I didn't make it up. It was something that was there. So he argues for the second coming, that glory that Christ is to arrive in by appealing to experience. I have already seen it. It's not made up. The second part is that he argues and talks about authority. He says, man, the authority of the holy prophets, that the prophets have predicted the second coming of Christ. They, they predicted his first coming, and they got it right. They predicted that he would arrive, and he would come born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, and a whole bunch of things. They have predicted that, and so they also have predicted his second coming. So we can have faith in the fact that there is a, a revelation that's already been given to us, that the coming of Christ is happening. It will happen again. He will come again. And so that's a part of the end of chapter 1. And in chapter 2, he, he goes and argues for the final judgment. And he says that all those who are wicked and evil and false teachers, they are certain. There is a certainty that they will face judgment. Judgment is waiting for them. Eternal punishment is waiting for them. But for those of us who are righteous, he goes on to say how we have this wonderful, glorious hope that God is able to rescue us. And though the world will be judged, we will be rescued because of what Christ has done for us. Even those of us who are considered righteous because of who we are in Christ, but yet live inconsistent lives, like he gives the example of Lot's. And then he talks about the persons and the, the motives and the positions of these false teachers that he's being combative against. And he shows how they are false and they are wrong. But essentially what he's trying to do in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 is that he's trying to argue that we as Christians need to stand firm. We need to pursue after Jesus, even in the midst of global pandemics, even in the midst of only being able to gather in small amounts of people, even in the midst of the world going crazy and sinning and people turning away from the things of God, that we as a church and as a Christian people need to stand firm and pursue after Jesus. And we need to do so in light of the fact that Christ can return at any moment. We've got to be ready waiting for him. So that's where we kind of find ourselves this morning. And Peter here in the text that we have anticipates, predicts the, a, a rebuttal against this argument. He predicts it, I'm sure, for his own people that he's writing to, but he also says in the end times, near the end for us, that there are going to be a people they're going to stand up and mock and ridicule this. They're going to, they're going to say this. We see it in, in verse 4. He says this, Where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers have fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Essentially, the call of Peter to stand firm and lift Jesus in light of the second coming, people are going to ask and say, But Jesus hasn't come yet. For, for the people he was writing to, they're going to say, Peter, it's been three decades You've been talking about this Jesus coming at any point. Where is he? Uh, people have died and, and, and things are just continuing as they were. So why are you asking me to change when it just doesn't seem like he's going to arrive anytime soon? And for us, man, even more so, 2,000 years later, to go, well, it's taken 2,000 years. Where is the, this so-called coming of Jesus? Do you want me to stand firm and live in, in, in the imminent arrival of Christ in light of that? Well, where is he? Why should I change? And, and so this is the argument that Peter is going to try to wrestle with. Does that make sense? Do you understand where we're going with this? He's going to try deal with this argument and deal with this, that's what he's going to deal with in this section of Scripture. And I think it's quite, quite prevalent for our time. I mean, there are many people, if we even just use the example of the second coming, are questioning, oh, is it true Christians? Is not the second coming rather prevalent in the Christian church at the moment? I think the global pandemic has, has caused us to all wake up a little and go, well, could Christ be coming at any time? And the, the conversations about the second coming of Christ are quite loud in the church at the moment, but I am sure, and I've seen online those, those rebuttals and go, well, where is he? It's been 2,000 years. Where's your God, church? Why hasn't he come yet? And, and not only that, when it comes to the second coming of Jesus Christ, but also when it comes to uh, just any actual Christian doctrine, 
those who scoff, those who ridicule, those who mock what we believe. And, and so that's what we're going to be trying to deal with this. And so how does deal, Peter deal with it? Well, let's, let's, look, at, um, let's look at verse parts of verse 1 and 2, and it might give us a bit of an indication of what he says here. I'm just going to read, I'm stirring up, uh, uh, up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. The first one that Peter is trying to help us to understand and get, that our faith is a matter of revelation. Our faith is a matter of revelation. Martin Lloyd-Jones probably puts it a little bit more eloquently than I. And he says this. He says, The whole issue is fundamentally an issue of faith and acceptance of the teaching of Scripture. Let me say that again. The whole issue is fundamentally an issue of faith and an acceptance of the uh, teaching of Scripture. The Christian faith is not primarily a matter of intellect. It's not primarily a matter of a philosophy. It's not pri- it is primarily a matter of revelation. So what does that mean? That means for us that we... What does it mean? Well, it does not mean that intellect is not required. Our man, intellectual ability is certainly required in order for us to grasp the revelation that God has given us. It is certainly that. What it, is, what it does not mean, it does not mean that we have, through our own intellectual prowess, been able to discover evidence and come to these conclusions ourselves, but rather God graciously has broken into our time and revealed himself to us. Does that make sense? It's not us in our intellectual ability that have discovered it, but God has shown it to us. In actual fact, Scripture says that we have not the ability to be able to figure it out. Our intellectual ability is not good enough. If we got all the greatest minds that ever lived, bring some of those back to life, get the current ones and put them in a room, and we said figure it out with all the philosophies and sciences and technologies, we would not be able to come up with something so awesome as our God. We could not get there. We see this explained to us in, in, our, in um, Isaiah in Isaiah uh, 55, verses 8 and 9, it says this. For my, uh, God speaking through his prophet Isaiah says this. For, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. He says, man, your greatest intellects, <laughs> we are so far apart like the earth is from the heavens. I am so, my thoughts are so much higher. We could not come up with this awesome God. We could not get to that point on our own. In, in, Corinthians, in, in Corinthians 25 and 29, it talks about how God has used things that are foolish to men to, and, and, uh, to shame the wise and things that are, 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 that are uh, uh, weak to men to shame the strong. And what he, he's essentially saying here is we see in the text is he says that the Jews thought it was absolutely ridiculous that we would consider the Son of God to be a carpenter who would die on a cross. Foolish. The Greeks thought it was ridiculous and foolish that we would believe in the re- death and resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection was something that they could not wrap their heads around. It was foolish to them. If this was conjured up by ourselves, we would have chose something that's far more fantastical to us than this scripture and this doctrine. We would have chosen something that is far more uh, what we would have enjoyed and what we want and desired. And we see that even in our text this morning, in 2 Peter 3 verse 3, it says that following their own sinful desires, they scoff. Man, our own sin would not allow us to conjure something like this up because we would rather make something that appeases us. That's what the false teachers were doing. They were making up doctrines and getting rid of doctrines so that they could live their way of life. This is not something that we would naturally choose because we ourselves rebel against God, not draw ourselves closer to Him. And therefore, man, this Christian faith is, isn't something that is conjured up through intellectual powers or ability, but rather it is a matter of revelation. And what I mean by that is God has come and he has shown us to himself. 
He has revealed himself to us. And we see that in this text. In, in 2 Peter 3 verse 2, it says the, uh, that he has revealed himself through the holy prophets and the commandments of our Lord and Savior through the apostles. He has shown us himself through this written text. He has revealed himself and his power and who he is through this amazing, incredible written book, this inspired word of God, the very word of God breathed out through man as he wrote it out for us. And as a result, it is incredibly trustworthy and we can rely on it and trust it. Sorry, I'm really having, a, I'm battling with my mic this, this morning. I had whole tape and everything to hope that would work. That we uh, have this incredible uh, uh, word of God that has been revealed to us. It's trustworthy and true. It's, it's something we can hold on to and believe in. Guide our lives around, structured around. Jesus says, says this in, in John 17, verse 17. We've, we've used this before, but he says, Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And the word there he uses, truth, is not the adjective true, but the noun truth. And that, that, that makes a big difference. That means this is not a book that is just true, that conforms to a higher standard of truth, but rather it is the very standard of truth that other truth needs to conform to. Does that make sense? It is the very standard of truth. It is the written word of God in which we guide our lives around. We, your, your word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. It guides us. And that means for us when others, particularly in this season, with every uh, Tom, Dick, and Harry making a prophecy out there, that when we hear those things, we don't just take them as true because they have a platform and a microphone, but rather what we do is we go to the Word of God and says, does it align? Because if it does not, we cast it out. We cast it out. So why, why, am, I, why am I saying all this? Why does Peter emphasize this point in his text? It's because the second coming is not a matter of arguments. We haven't discovered it, but rather it has been revealed to us by God. It's not a matter of argument. It has been revealed and shown to us by God that this is something that will happen. And so it's a matter of believing. Do we believe what this text says or not? We haven't come to this conclusion ourselves, but God has told us it will happen. And you see, this is going to put us into two camps. This is this idea that this is the trustworthy, truthful revelation of God that is true and we can hold to it divides men into two camps. You either believe it or you don't. Simple as that. And, and we, we see that there is a scoffing and a ridicule to the things of God as a general in the world we live in. I mean, I mean you're, not, you're not blind, you see it. Even at the most foundational part of Christianity, that there is a creator, there are those who scoff at and mock and ridicule that idea. How can there be a God? And, and there are multiple ways in which we have theorized and come up with ways to try to disprove God. Probably the most uh, famous one of those that we're all aware of is that of evolution. But even with evolution, it cannot answer the simple matters of where does the original matter come from. It can't answer where did life come from. It can't answer even at the most simplest forms of life. How is the intelligent design behind it? For us as Christians, it's quite simple. And, but that, and it seems to po point to a theistic God. But, but they have tried to scoff and ridicule and mock these things. Now, don't hear me wrong here. I'm not saying that there is no intellectual argument for what we believe. There's certainly logic behind what we hold to. There are great men and women who, who have discovered, far more smarter than I am, that have discovered so much, who have incredible arguments that are able to point to the fact there, that there is a God. But here's the problem with apologetics. It can only point you there. It can't prove it. And so what I mean by that is that we can have all the wonderful arguments in the world that point you to there being a God. I can, I can talk to you about those things. I enjoy listening to those things. We can have rational conversations where I can lay down wonderful arguments and evidences before you that there must be a God behind this creator. But what I cannot do is point to a place in the universe and go, there he is. I can't get him into a jam jar and go, here we go, believe. At some point, even with the greatest arguments, faith is required. At 
at some point, you have to look at this revelation and all the evidence and go, I believe. Because otherwise, you just have these wonderful arguments and never believe. Faith is essential. Absolutely essential. You have to believe in this revelation. And, and that, that, now that we've just been speaking about there is on a macro level, on a big level. But what about, I think you can have a doubt in this revelation to certain degrees, not all of it. So you go, yeah, yeah, Joe, I believe in God. I believe parts of this revelation, but I don't believe all of it. So I, when it comes to the Old Testament, there are stories that I, I hear, but, and they just seem too fantastical to be true. They just seem improbable. And so I'm not going to believe that. I just think those are myths and legends that have been made up over the period of time. I, 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 when I think of the New Testament, I hear about Jesus. I believe he's a good teacher that said amazing things and, did, and taught those wonderful things that we like to hear. But when it comes to the miracles that he did, I just think those are things that the disciples have made up in order to try and make him more attractive to an unbelieving world. Could he really have walked on water? Could he have really told a storm that was raging to say, peace, be still, and it stopped? Could he really have fed 5,000 with two, uh, two fish and five loaves? I doubt it. But the problem with this is, and this is a dangerous position into, into hold, is that it, it leads to some massive ramifications. So even if we just take today's text and to Peter. Peter talks about a, an Old Testament story that seems rather improbable, and that is the flood. And for Peter, Peter uses that as argument that judgment will happen in chapter 2, and he sees it even in our text today. We see in verse 5, he says, for they, de over, they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. In verse 6, it says, and here he's referring to the flood, and that by means of, the, of these, the world that existed was indulged with water and perished. So Peter believes it's true. He says they overlooked this fact. This is, he's not just referring to a fable to, to get a lesson out of it. He believes it to be true. And so, so for Peter, he finds that it's factual. But if you doubt it, you start to go, well, Peter got this wrong. Well, then the whole argument of two Peter seems to fall on its face. So we can scrap that of 2 Peter. What else has Peter got wrong? Well, if he got that wrong, he surely got something else wrong, and so we can start to doubt other things. Jesus taught about the flood. He said it was true. He uses this as an example from the second coming as well. And if, if Jesus got it wrong, then doesn't God know everything? And if God knows everything, well, then how did Jesus get it wrong? Believe something that's not true then is Jesus really God? Do you see the, you see the ramifications of where this can go? This, this just leads on to faith. When you start to doubt this and start to doubt parts of the story and cast things aside, you start to end up with very little. In actual fact, you start to put together what you like and what you want. A very postmodernistic thinking. What is true for me? Is this, is this true for me? Well, I think this is true because who gets to determine what is true and not in this book if we don't believe the whole thing? We just get to make up our own God. And you see, we can't de deny parts of the story because this is one story. From beginning to end, this is the story of redemption that God has come to do. And when we start to pull parts out of it, you're making your own story up. And so we've got to guard ourselves against saying, man, this is only parts true and wrong. For, because for Peter, Peter's argument here is this is all true. Every single part of this is true. He holds to it all. And that's really his argument. Now, I'm going I'm to leave it at that, and we, we can talk a little bit more about it a little later. But Peter accepts the entirety of Scripture, and therefore this is his response to those scoffers who say, where is he? He refers, as I've already mentioned, to the story of the flood. He talks about the flood, and he says, man, for those of you who might not remember the story or just need a bit of a reminder of it, there was an ancient world that was living in sin, had uh, uh, fled away from God, was doing their own stuff, and God breaks into this world and speaks to a righteous man named Noah and says, no, I'm going to judge this world through a flood. 
and it's going to rain, which apparently they had never seen before, and, 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 they, and they are, and you must go and tell them and warn them about this while you build a massive boat called an ark. Now, now you can imagine as Noah goes out and tells the story, the scoffiness starts to take place. Just, just picture it. I, at least I picture him as an old man that never wears a shirt for some reason. I don't know why. With a big beard, and he's a bit lucky, he's a bit creepy. And he's he walking around going, repent, it's going to rain, it's going to flood. And he's building this giant wooden boat. And I don't know how the animal thing happened, if it all happened over like a couple of days and months building up to it. Or he did this for 120 years, or slowly over 120 years, the animals started to pitch up. And here was this man with a giant boat in his own personal zoo. Repent! He's the kind of guy that got bullied at school by the rugby jocks, right? Shoved into lockers, got wedgies. He's the kind of guy that kids go and say, there's the haunted house. Can you go and knock on his door and run away as fast as you can? Make stories about him and you're scared of him and there's myths and they're mocked. 120 years he waited. 120 years. Noah, where's the rain, Noah? Where's the judgment, Noah? Ooh, it's going to rain. 50 years, Noah. It's been 50 years. It's been a century, old man. And they're mocked and they're ridiculed. But the rain came and he was vindicated. And essentially Peter's argument for us this morning is it might seem like some time. You might be mocked, you might be ridiculed, but look at history. What has happened is that God does come through and there will be those who will scoff and say, where is the coming of Jesus? Ooh, Jesus is coming back. But whether he comes back in our lifetime or not, we will stand before the white throne of God. And every knee who mocked and ridiculed and scoffed will have to bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. Mark will talk about time and stuff in a while, but 120 years is a long period you have to wait. This is longer for sure. But essentially he peels back to the old and says, look, destruction took place. They forget about this fact. It will happen. It is true. This morning I want to shift a little gears there because I, I realize that when it comes to the revelation of God, Scripture, that sometimes we can think it's only those who might be scoffers or those who are atheists that they have an incorrect relationship with Scripture. And this morning I want to briefly just look at three things that I want to guard us as a church at having an incorrect relationship with Scripture. And the, and the first one is that we uh, desire a new revelation over being obedient to the revelation we've received. There we can have a desire in us for new revelation, but yet never put into the clear revelation that we have received by God into practice. And so, so what they can look like, I think it can look like in two different ways. I think one, maybe probably the most simple and easy to adjust to, is that you have a, an incredible desire for something new. So today you've come to church, you will listen to the sermon, you've watched it online. Maybe later tonight you will listen to another sermon or listen to this one again. Maybe you will go and you'll listen this week and you'll listen to a couple more sermons of some of the famous teachers you have uh, that you really enjoy. You'll read a Christian book. You'll dive into scripture. You like to learn new things. Your best part about sermons is when a, a preacher tells you something that you had never heard before. The, new, the stuff that we talk about scripture and stuff, ah, we've heard all of that. Give me something new. The danger is that even though we overload ourselves with a bunch of information, with all this new stuff we are growing, which is wonderful, that we never ever apply it and put it into our hearts. That we neglect to be obedient to the gracious revelation of God in which he has given us. We essentially become, like James says, we, we become hearers of the word of God, but not doers of it. And I want to guard us against that saying, man, I love your enthusiasm. I love the fact that you want to grow and read more, but what is God saying to you and are you doing it? Because, oh, it's a dangerous place to be, to be a people that are learning new things but never applying it into your lives and being obedient to what he said. Now, if you've gone to Bible study this week, there's a good chance your Bible study leader asked you, what has God said to you recently and have you done it? So what has he said to you recently and have you done it? 
We, we, at the end of every sermon, have a response time where we ask, what has God said to you? We don't do that just because we want to fill up time. But we do that because we, we want to be a people that hear, Lord, this is what you've pointed out, and I commit to changing. So guard yourselves against being people who hear but never do. That you want the new revelation of being obedient of the revelation that he's already given you. But I think this can be applied in another way. And I think it can be seen that we desire new revelation over the true revelation. And so, yeah, 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 Joe, we, we know this book. We, we know, yeah, we know what we've been. We've been in churches our whole lives. We, we get what that is. But what is the new stuff out there? Man, just particularly in our time, when it comes, if we have to use the example of the second coming again, it's prevalent to our text as well, is that at the moment there, as I've said, every Tom, Dick, and Harry is out there giving a prophecy. Every person on, on, the, on YouTube is giving us something new to say. Where's 21 going to be? Man, some guys got 2020 horribly wrong. They're predicting where 2021 is going to go and this is what's going to happen. And, and, and they start to conclude and go into conspiracy theories around the second coming, right? I'm sure you've been sent those videos. The Pope has met with someone in the UN and they're conspiring. And we dive into that, into stuff that might not necessarily be true over being obedient to the true revelation we've received. And if we think about the implications clearly defined for us in Scripture around the second coming, we don't do those as we look at the non-true stuff about the second coming that's out there. So we, Scripture clearly indicates to us that we need to wake up, be obedient. Christ is going to return. Get your house in order. Get ready. Jesus is coming back. But yet we're not doing any of that. But rather what we're doing is we're trying to see if the vaccine is the mark of the beast. But yet watching porn on that same computer we just watched. Our lives are not in order. And, I, and I'm, I'm concerned for us. I'm concerned for us as a church. I'm concerned for us as SBC, as a, as a church in East London, because we love this stuff in East London and around the globe, that we are so eager for the new that we have forsaken the clear instruction of the true. And I want to guard you against that and say, how's your relationship with Scripture doing? Are you being obedient clearly to what God has said? Peter has encouraged us to add certain qualities to our faith. Are you doing those? Are you making uh, use of this wonderful faith that we have that's on equal standing to that of the apostles? Are you striving after Jesus or are you worried about all the new that's out there? Guard yourself against that church. The second one that I want us to, to guard ourselves against is having a head knowledge but no heart knowledge. Having a head knowledge, but no heart knowledge. And before I start this, I, I just want to make a disclaimer. I love doctrine. I do. I love to read it. I love to study it. I love to talk about it. Mark came into my office this week, and he distracted me for a good hour and a half while I was meant to be doing sermon prep because he spoke about doctrine. And I enjoyed it. And then later I was meant to do being, doing admin and I caught myself daydreaming about what Mark and I were talking about. I just, I love it. And if you wanted to grow in your knowledge, I mean, grow in your relationship with God, you have to grow in your knowledge of him. You do. If you want to love Jesus more, you have to know him more. He's made himself knowable to us. And so it's important that we do that. But my fear is that this year, just becomes an academic exercise. That this comes about filling our heads with knowledge and never allowing what we have read to filter into our hearts and make it a love for Jesus. And it just can't be so. It can't be. This is God's revelation to us so that he might show you who he is and how he desires you and loves you and wants to know you. This is God's revelation so that you might see that he has sent his son to die for you so that you could have an intimate relationship with him. How will we ever get to a point, and I fall into this trap often, where this becomes an academic exercise beyond me, but we do. Because we're not to read this to tick off a box, to get off our checklist, or to gain information and arguments, but rather it is so that I might fall madly in love with Jesus. 
Reading scripture is not only to fill your head up with knowledge, but when you do it right, it fills your heart up with love. It fills your heart with love. A love for him. You desire him. You want him. And I can, a telltale sign in my heart that as I do this daily, that it's just become an academic exercise or routine for me, is that I, I, I start to, to not love people. When I dislike people and people are frustrating me and I'm angry with people and bitter towards people, it often shows me, Joe, your love for Jesus is dwindling. That's just a telltale sign for me. I don't know. It might be useful for you. But how is your love for Jesus going this morning? Do you love him? Do you desire him? Do you want him? Do you, do, you, do, you, do you just want to get to know him and be in his presence and, and spend time at his feet and enjoy him? Do you want that? Oh, I want that for you. I want that for me. Uh, I want us to be a church that, yeah, we do cool things and we have good services, but we are not characterized by how quick and, and, and well everything flows out and how great and eloquent the preachers are or how wonderful the worship team is and how great our children's ministry is, but rather that we'll be characterized by love for Jesus. How's your love doing? Because I, I want to tell you nothing else is as important as that. Nothing. And, and, and if you don't love him at the moment, you could go, Joe, you're asking me that question. If I'm honest, I'm dry. I'm weary. It's either one because you're not spending enough time in his love letter to you. You're not enjoying it. You're not spending there, just soaking in Christ. Or, you are, or you're like me that falls into the trap of just ticking a box or getting, doing this for academic exercise. And man, if that's, if that's you, just, just spend time asking and praying, Lord, fill my heart with you. May I love you. Holy Spirit, as I read this, would you illuminate Christ to me? Would you show this wonderful Jesus? May I see you in every page and every word. May I fall in love. He will honor that prayer. He will honor it. Pray, seek, don't give up. Find that love. Find it. Otherwise, we would just end up being modern-day Pharisees filled with head knowledge but nothing else. Pursue after it. The last one, and I'll end off with this, is that we can have a spiritual apathy. We can have a spiritual apathy. Matt Chandler puts it like this. He says that uh, to, it is to be spiritually unaware, uh, spiritually aware but different, indifferent. It's to be spiritually aware but indifferent. It, 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 when it comes to the revelations of God, we know of it, but we just couldn't care. We don't care about what he said. We don't care about what he's doing. One, one of the, the signs is that we have become spiritually apathetic is that we start to not really have a desire to know the God who has died for our souls. We don't care. We, we talk about God. We say things about God, but we never really consult him. And so we, we say things like, well, I'm sure God would want this for my marriage. And we make that, whatever that might be, up based on our own feelings and what our own intelligence rather than go into the word of God and going, what does God want for my marriage? I'm sure God would want me to parent like this or respond like this in my situation, but we never consult the word of God on it. But that's not what it is. We've got to guard ourselves from being so nonchalant about the things of God. How's, how's that for you? Are you spiritually apathetic? Because this word of God is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And what that means for us is when it comes to our marriages, we go along and say, well, we, we go to Scripture and we allow the Holy Spirit to illuminate how God wants us to act and be a spouse in our marriage for the glory of Christ. And for our parenting, we run to Scripture and we go, how do I parent? The Holy Spirit, we ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate us how we should be parents and how we should do and act like that for the glory of Christ. And so for our businesses and so for our relationships and so for our attitudes and so for our actions and our dreams and our desires and our goals, etc., etc. Every action of life, this word becomes a something that gives us a guide to it. And we become spiritually apathetic when we just make decisions without ever consulting God's word. And the, last, the, the second way I think that this can be shown, the spirit, a, a spiritual indifference, 
is that when we fall in uh, prey to spiritual apathy, uh, apathy is when we don't care about our sin in our lives or the, um, or the, the sin in the, in the church. We just don't care anymore. And this normally happens when culture comes along and, and the world comes along and normalizes sin for us to such a degree that they just go, that's normal. That's, that's okay. And, and the danger is we go, yeah, we agree with you. We start to go to the revelation of God and go, well, isn't it outdated? Isn't it right anymore? Should this catch up with the world? rather than holding to what is clearly revealed to us. Because while I was saying earlier this, this, uh, this morning that this is the, the true revelation, I'm not saying it's old. This, this hasn't gotten old for us. This is a living and active. It's just as fresh and anew as it was when it was first penned. It's just as relevant for us. But when we become spiritually apathetic, we start to go, well, I think that need, the Bible and the church needs to update in this area. And I think one that the world does at the moment so, so different and has normalized so much that is contrasted to the, the traditional Christian ethics of the church is sexual sin, right? I mean, pornography is just so readily available and accessible for us. Statistics show that more than half the men in this room and watching online are watching porn. And ladies, you're quickly catching up. I'm not saying that's you. I'm just saying that's what stats show. Then, then we also, when it comes to sexual promiscuity, it's so common. Adultery is around nearly every corner. Issues of homosexuality in the LGBTQ movement has become so normalized that we are so pushing hard to take it. When we become spiritually apathetic, we care less about what the world has to do. And, and my concern one of my biggest concerns for us as a church is that over COVID, when we've been forced to stay away, when guys who desperately want to be at church this morning have to sit on a TV screen at home and watch, that over the period of not gathering, we have become spiritually apathetic. And, and the reality, the people that need to hear this section the most aren't ever going to listen to the sermon. Because over the period of time, they've just stopped. It's been nearly a year since we've, uh, we first went into lockdown. It's been nearly a year for some of those who have had no church experience. Spiritual apathy is going to creep in if we do not guard ourselves. I mean, if, if you know anyone like that who hasn't been around for a while, you've noticed they're missing, you haven't, you haven't heard from them, I, I just want to encourage you to just love on them. Get, hey, I haven't seen you in a while. How are you doing? How are you with the Lord? Uh, really just reach out. Do that. Do it. It might be a hard conversation to have, but we have those hard conversations because we love Him. Because we, we desire God and we want them to desire Him too. So to have those conversations with Him. But let's not make it about others this morning. How are you doing here? Let us, let us bow. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I'm going to ask a question. What has God been saying to you this morning? Has he been prodding on something that you need to say, Lord, that is what I'm going to change. I, I'm not going to just hear the word, I'm going to do it. What is he saying to you? Maybe it's praise in your heart. Maybe it's an action that you need to do. What is it? Maybe it's a friend that he's laid on your heart to go and talk to, to share your faith with, or call back to church. What is it? Maybe it's your time in God's word that you need to make a commitment to doing again. What action are you going to do for the glory of Christ? Oh Lord, we, we, we are so thankful that you have not left us up to our own intelligence to discover you, but you in your grace and in your mercy loved us so much that you broke into time and revealed yourself to us through your word. Lord, I pray for us as a church that we would be a people that hold on to this wholeheartedly. That we, we use this word of God to strive us closer to you, to desire you, Lord. Oh, Lord, we, we as a church have the danger of becoming a, a church quickly that is filled with pride and head knowledge, but never ever allowing that to filter in our hearts. Would you help us with that? Would you help us to, to love well and to love you well. I pray for everyone here that as they go home and this week as they spend time in your word that you would make it fresh and new for them. 
that would love you and see you in the pages and be blown away by you. I pray for those who might be spiritually apathetic to the things of God, that if they're sitting in this building because they've been dragged here this morning or reluctantly have come or, or friends invited them or they're watching online for whatever reason and they're just, I just have no love for Christ. I pray, Lord, that you'd waken them up. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you waken us up as a church that we'd be on fire for Christ, that we would want to advance this kingdom for Jesus. Oh, Lord, let it not be about ourselves and let us not be indifferent. May we take seriously your call to stand firm. Oh, Lord, may we desire the true over those that preach some new gospel. Stir in our hearts, Lord. Stir in our hearts a desire for your word. I pray, Lord, that we would stand firm, that we would be firm when the world sins and there's opposition against the church and we are called to be different. I pray, Lord, that we would stand firm against the enemy and that we would pursue after you. For you will come and you know, we know that you will not shame us. You are faithful and you will vindicate us. And one day we will be with you, either when we die or when you return. But we long for that day. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? We're going to, we're going to sing some songs.
you that if you have a word to share or you feel a prompting in your heart, it's so good to hear testimony of what God is doing. Joey and Mark in the front here, chat to them and I'll give you a spot. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross, you would lay down your life, that I would be set free. Oh, Jesus, I sing for all that you've done for me. Morning church, um, firstly let me say this is my first time back since lockdown and it has been wonderful to see you all to worship live with this incredible band, it's been fantastic. I just wanted to say something to those of you who are involved with the soup making for NCO in your small groups. Um, okay, so most of you know who, what NCO is about and Mark had asked the small groups to please get stuck in and make soup, we have a soup kitchen twice a week. And this last week, Joshua, one of the ministry leaders, was approached by one of our customers who said, please teach me how to make the soup. It is the best soup I have ever tasted. And Josh kind of pondered on that fact and that request. Firstly, it is made by three churches and we make it together. But you know what? There's no recipe for our soup except if you take soup as however you want to make it and put in a big dollop of agape love. Really, it's the three churches working together. It's made completely out of love. There's ministers there that um, come and, and minister to the guys and mentor them. And so it's God's soup. There is no recipe for that soup. I just wanted to say thank you to all of you who are involved. And take courage. The guys are. It's having a huge impact on them and on their families. Morning, church. My first time in the front. <laughs> it's not, I don't enjoy speaking in front of people but um, okay <laughs> last year October I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer and it's been a bit of a rough ride since then but um, God has been amazing through it all he's provided for me emotionally spiritually through the small groups through mom friends through everybody through patients I'm a doctor and just the way that I found this cancer in the first place is a miracle because it was the tiniest thing and um, if yeah the Holy Spirit led me to find it and yeah I'm cured um, it's got a good prognosis um, and then things upped a little bit 31st of December I got COVID super bad <laughs> I thought no um, God won't lead me through this thing as well Ugh, or he won't let me get COVID because I had cancer now so uh, you know it kind of puts me out of danger for that <laughs> I got it so bad but um, I think he just took me through a journey to to teach me about his love for me and that we have to trust in him alone we can't trust on our own understanding we can't trust on our own health even we have to trust in him and yeah want to give God all the glory for this. Yes, Lord, we give you praise. Thank you for the work, your work in Jenna's life. Thank you for your hand of healing upon her and how you've sustained her. Thank you for the wonderful example her life is to testify to your goodness and how real you are. 
Lord, we thank you also for the work you're doing in our city and through the soup kitchen. Thank you for people like Tracy and Sharon who, who are leading that ministry. Thank you for stirring the hearts of small groups to get involved. And Lord, thank you for even this wonderful testimony of uh, a heart that um, uh, is feeling so blessed by this ministry. And I pray, Lord, that we would uh, be stirred more. We'd have our eyes open. Lord, we know that you are at work in the city. You are at work all around us all the time. You have your hand on our lives. And you want our lives to be a testimony of uh, your grace and your mercy and your goodness. And I pray, Lord, that more and more uh, we would share our testimonies so that you could get glory. What gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer? There is no joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to His. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing. All is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side, the Savior, He will stay.
morning church that's the perfect song for my life four years ago i was diagnosed with colon cancer today three years ago was my last chemo session and i must just say without the lord none of this would have been possible i just want to give all glory to him for what he's done in my life thank you to be in your presence. Thank you for these powerful testimonies to remind us that you are alive and you're on the move. You love us, Lord. The only reason we're still here is because you have a plan and a purpose for your kingdom and you've called us to come alongside you and join you in that work, Lord. As a church, Lord, we want you to save us from spiritual apathy. Would you stir our hearts Would you soften them where they've become hard? Lord, would you show us how to be obedient and what is the action step we need to take? We want to stop putting you off, Lord. We want to stop putting off your spirit. 
We want to stop making it only about our own desires and what we want to do, Lord. We want to be sensitive to you and we want to do what you say and trust you. Thank you, Lord, that you are with us. Thank you that you go with us now, even as we leave this place. And we're praying, Lord, that we would grow in our faith, grow in our obedience, fall more and more in love with you and your word, and that we would see more and more people around us come to know you through our testimonies. In Jesus' name, amen. That's the end of the service, church. Um, You're welcome to fellowship more under the tent. Um, Otherwise, we'll see you uh, next week, and we'll see you next week online as well.